0: Okay, that's better. Now I got you through my headset. Can you hear me?
1: I can. I I think you actually may have been correct about the Lorette Lin hand puppet. I think it's time to call the Chinese operation and have it stop production. Um, (laughs) It may be confusing for some people. It may not be clear what the intent was.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, it's just maybe TMI about me that my mind went there immediately and I went, oh my goodness.
1: keep your hands warm through friction. No wait, no, that's not the advertising <laughs> slogan that we want.
0: <laughs> not exactly, you know, the idea I'm trying to portray here. <laughs> Plug
1: in the unplugged mom anyway. Okay, I think. We can oh yeah, that well, that's worth it.
0: <laughs> I've I've heard I've heard a lot of that, which really uh, played into my decision to kind of say, okay, maybe it's time for <laughs> a change.
1: Yeah, so lay, lay down to me the Last couple of bits of time. It all sounds very interesting.
0: Um, What's that now? All the
1: decisions (laughs) you've made. You were going to start the radio shows not do the radio show. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. You know, and I was actually really looking forward to that, doing the the weekly live show, because I loved doing the live show when we were doing it, you know. Um, And when I did it for the two years, when I did Unplugged Mom for two years, it worked out because the time that I did it was, uh, eight o'clock on Friday mornings and my family was still asleep and we didn't have anything else going on on Friday. So it was kind of a lazy day anyway. But my, not only did my husband's work schedule change, uh, he works from home and he runs a home business, but he shifted his hours around a little bit. So kind of made it a little bit more difficult for me to do the show at eight o'clock in the morning. And I kept thinking, well, how early am I going to get up? You know? Um, so I was thinking maybe on Sundays, but it turns out that as my kids get older, they don't get less busy. They get more busy because they have more of an active social life. So it just became a little bit more demanding of my calendar. And I, I started to shift things around, and I was thinking maybe doing it on Sunday morning. Um, and then I, I just finally said, you know what, this is, this is turning out to be like more, more trouble than I wanted it to be. Having always to worry about well, what time am I going to do it, and uh, when am I going to have time to? Because if you're going to do a quality show, you have to spend some time researching the topics and reading everything. You can't just like arbitrarily say things, you know. You have to know what you're talking about, and then there's always time invested in uh, finding guests and communicating with that.
1: To the wrong guy. About that, but, but I, I understand so oh the quality well, show I, part, yes, if you want a quality show, you need to do that that's certainly never been part of my mandate, except of course, when you're on, but I understand that it is a restriction for other people
0: <laughs> well it, maybe it just comes naturally to you because you do have a quality show, but I wanted to I, I like to make sure that I, I research the topics that I talk about. I do a lot of reading and communicate with the guests and you know there it, there is time involved in it so. I just oh, yeah, finally people, said, you know, people I need who don't to do shows they don't know. On. It's
1: like it's like at least four hours of prep for an hour of radio. I mean, yeah. to do it right, yeah.
0: Yeah, there there is there is time involved. When I started, it was kind of off the cuff, but uh, as I got as the audience grew and I started to get more into it and read more about doing the show and learn more about it, I wanted to make it better. And the more effort I put into it, the more the audience grew, the better it started going. And that it at some point it became a little bit too much for me to. You know, Chew, um, and you know we we went over that story uh, because there was some personal issues involved in that. But so I, I just said, you know, I, I I just need to wait. I just need to take this as a sign and just put the brakes on a little bit and wait. Um, but I wanted to try to make it clear to everyone that I wasn't completely closing up shop. I'm still running the website. Uh, you know, I still try to answer as many emails as I can. I'm not writing as many articles because I'm going to try to focus on learning curves and get that book finished. Um, so I'm still here. I'm just not going to do the live show. And I was talking to my my daughter recently and she keeps asking me, when am I going to do the show again? And I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's a time issue. And she, She's getting older now, and she's willing to invest a little bit of time, but she has a very busy, uh, active life herself. She's involved in a whole bunch of different things, as are my boys. Um, But she suggested, actually, that I do the podcasting, and I said, you know, that's just as time-consuming, if not more, because then it's you got to edit them, and I spend all this time editing. At least with the live show, I don't edit much. It's kind of, well, it is what it is. If I messed up, oh, well, you know? Are you still there?
1: Oh, yes, of course. Of course.
0: Oh, okay. My speaker is just blocked uh, out. Um, anyway, I was answering emails one day, and I was, I was in the office for longer than I, I wanted to be, but it was late at night. Everybody was sleeping, but uh, she woke up, and she said, why are you up so late? And I said, well, I'm answering emails. So she said, that's what you should do. Instead of answering emails by writing, you should have just a half an hour um, podcast will you just address everybody's questions and concerns? And I said, well, I guess I could do that because I could certainly answer it faster verbally than I can in writing. Um, so I'm yeah. thinking about it. I'm, I'm tossing around the idea of if I keep, it, keep myself limited to 35 minutes, And I'm strict about that. And I don't commit to any weekly thing. I just, okay, like a couple of times a month, I'll go ahead and I'll address a particular topic, like something that is especially important um, to parenting and, you know, uh, free thinking or libertarian type of parenting. I'll address a particular topic, but I don't want to commit to a particular time every week because our family schedule is really uh, taking up my focus right now. And I, I don't, I just think that's more important.
1: Well, I mean, that's a limited thing, right? I mean, your kids are going to get older. They're going to, you know, shoot right. the, the bowstring and off they go. And then it'd be like, gosh, now I have some time. And, you know, I kind of miss the time that I spent with that.
0: Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you always you, you go back to and people say this, too. And they say, well, you know, you got to do it now while well, you're young and, you know, you're still pretty and you're energetic and you have the charisma and everything. And I said, well, do you, are you saying that, you know? Maybe five or six years from now, I'm gonna be like gross and ugly and stupid.
1: Do people actually say to you, you've gotta, what, do media now while you're pretty? Oh, yeah. Are they really? Oh, I'm so sorry. I would like to apologize for the world as a whole for its ridiculous shallowness.
0: Oh, yeah. You're you're still young and attractive. It's not always pretty, but, you know, you're still young and attractive.
1: <laughs> well, attractive is, is still the same kind of thing, though, right? I mean, what a silly criteria to have, uh, you know? I mean, I get it. Like, if you're going to go on Fox News, then you've got to look like some aerobics instructor made out of a wax museum. But, I mean, it's, uh, you know, for, for podcasting and stuff like that, I mean, what does it doesn't matter. I mean, and, and for quality thought transmission, what on earth would it matter?
0: No, it doesn't matter at all. And I, I think that I'm I'm still young enough that in in you know maybe six or seven years from now I'll still be smart. I'll still be charismatic. I'll you know maybe I'll even be more intelligent because I'll have more wisdom behind me and will I'll have raised my kids. You know, so I'll have more to offer the world from that perspective. And I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I'll still be hot. So. <laughs>
1: Well, all all you have to do, Lorette, is just switch to a low-def camera. You know, that's going to shave at least a (laughs) decade off your looks. Uh, You know, Botox, uh, some sort of horrible voodoo, Vaseline on the lens of a low-def camera, and you'll look pretty much like you're 12. Oh, wait, that's probably not the kind of audience you want to attract as well. But, um, yeah, so many options. I I just think, oh, my, I don't think anyone, I mean, this is just the different world that men and women live in, or maybe the different world that attractive and unattractive people live in, but I don't think anyone has said to me, you know, Steph, it's really, really important that you (laughs) continue to do your show while you're attractive. Um, I guess, but, you know, pre-Crypt Keeper yeah. days, which kick in, I guess, in the early 50s, um, I guess is the time to strike while the iron's hot.
0: I think, no, I think it's a woman thing. I, th- I think it's inadvertent sexism. So I don't really get insulted. I don't see it as sexism because it, I, I just think it's inadvertent. It's a... You know, society kind of trains you in a certain way. Just just like they, they go out of their way to put bright-looking blonde people on Fox News so they all look like the sunshine, you know? And you have, like, <laughs> the, the angry-looking, like, glass-wearing uh, other kind on the other shows. <laughs> it's just – it's all strategy. It's all marketing.
1: Yeah, Megan Fox versus um – Oh uh, Amy Goodman I think is the one on democracy now who actually looks like a real human being. Uh, anyway, yeah. it's uh, it is it is a little tragic that uh, people need to get their you know facts uh, through this uh, this nonsense but uh, I guess it's a photogenic world so it's a little tough to fight.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean you know there's something to be said for uh, me where I think we've done a few shows together where I I wouldn't do video. So I'm not that much of a camera hound. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i don 't know about you i I read all these studies about sitting is fatal you know it 's really really mm-hmm. bad for you, so I always try and do uh, i 'm sort I used to do more videos i 'm sort of abandoning that now because I mean, I don't think anyone sits there and watches an hour of me just staring at the camera and talking. And I I generally do better, think better when I can gesture, when I can walk around and and all of that. So I'm, and that's what I do for the Sunday show is I just do like a, a two hour back and forth stroll fest. So, you know, a little exercise, keep the body moving and don't do that hunched over like a snail staring at your own mortality thing that seems to be uh, what doctors are advising against these days.
0: Hmm. Well, I just, I'm I'm very self-conscious in front of a camera and The times that I've done it with you, and the times that I've done it with Brett, I do it because I, you know, there are people out there that are more visual, I guess. Uh, But I find that I'm so much more into the camera lens and worrying about like, am I looking in the right place? Am I looking at the camera? They should be thinking I'm looking at them. You know, don't 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 scratch your head. Don't stick your arm in your pit. Like you know, I'm worried about all (laughs) these different things.
1: Keep finger out of your nose. Don't your ear.
0: I can't. I can't think. You know, right now I'm kind of. I'm more relaxed. I I can rub my eyes and not worry about my mascara. I can drink my car, my coffee, and you know, so I can well, concentrate also, on what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, I don't think people get that staring at a camera is like you know. It is like having a staring staring contest with a cyclops robot. It's not. You're not looking at a person. You're looking at you know a series of concentric lenses or whatever and so it's tough Mm -hmm. i mean there obviously is a skill to talking to the camera like it's a person and but that you know that's for actors not for uh, podcasters so yeah it's it's a bit of a funny thing i I think that it's probably a little bit more in, in just talking to people than staring at the camera and pretending it's a person
0: yeah it's a little different
1: all right so our show topic yes i remember rightly
0: Parenting versus
1: politics. Parenting versus politics. Yes, yes, yes. And I, I appreciate this. I actually, just came up in a show I did yesterday with Mike Shanklin uh, about about this. It does seem to be that this ship is slowly slowly turning around, you know, because of the efforts of, of people in the movement to get people to focus on once you look at the smoking debris of political action that's really been the focus over the past. Certainly, it was going into 08, was a huge focus from sort of 06 to 08, and then, of course, from 10 to 12. So, you know, six or seven years of just a huge amount of focus on political action. And, you know, lo and behold, the government is bigger than ever. The government is more in debt than ever. The government's reach uh, through NDAA, indefinite detentions, the expansions uh, in in, uh, renditions and uh, extraordinary renditions and drone strikes and possible torture and all of that. And now, of course, with the guns issue, it really hasn't uh, achieved what it is that we want it to achieve. And I guess the the question I have and the question that, that I think is worth asking is let's not keep doing the same thing and think it's going to achieve a different result, you know, that old definition of insanity. And But I think if people – if it's not going to be academics and it's not going to be like education academics, whatever it is, sharing articles from The Economist or, or the Cato Institute or whatever – if it's not going to be that, what's it going to be? And um, the one thing, as I said yesterday, that we really haven't tried is um, is just really focusing on, on parenting and personal relationships. And that's kind of good. It's good that we have an important thing that hasn't been tried yet because if we didn't, we'd really be out of answers, right?
0: Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole idea seems to have backfired. And I'm guilty of of walking down that road too. thinking, this is very important. And going into that time, and it was probably around 2005, 2006, and then even more so in in going into 2008 from 2007, I became heavily involved in politics. And I was very, very active. And I felt that it was extremely important. And my children were very young at that time. They were younger than they are now, obviously. And uh, I... Tried to balance my time the best I could, but I was convinced that it was extremely important that I'm I'm paving a better road, that I'm making a better future for my children. And it was difficult because there was that sense of, but shouldn't I be spending more time with them versus the sense of, but you need, you're responsible to, to your community, to your world, to your, the future of your children, to your country, and so on and so forth. And I think I was very nervous uh, about the future, that I was bringing my children up into, and I I wanted to do my part, I felt. And, you know, we all felt a a certain amount of ambition, and you get riled up about a certain cause, especially when it comes to personal freedom and liberty, and you want to do what you can to try to protect that. So I was a a fan of Ron Paul at the time, of course, and I was very active. I didn't run for any particular office, uh, but I was very active. And over the years, I had been asked several times, to run for office. And I declined, but I, I declined running for a house of representatives or Congress or anything of that nature. But I did agree to get involved in a lot of other ways over the last year, some personal matters as well as what I've just learned, uh, Culturally and politically, and uh, just through, I guess, personal evolution, and you know, wisdom always changes your perspective, and experience always changes someone's perspective. I pulled away from a lot of that. And for most of the time, I was just trying to observe and remain aware without getting too actively involved. And like I said, there were a myriad of different reasons why I I made the decision to pull away from it. Uh, I also pulled away from a lot of what I was doing with Unplug Mom Radio, and I just started to realize that I matter so much more than I think with my family, which was a little bit of a difficult reality for me to grasp because it was what I preach, that's the message that I talk about. That's what Unplugged Mom Radio was really about, was you need to focus on your family. And if you need to make the sacrifices in you know your life while your kids are small, then that's what you need to be doing in home education and supporting home education and all of that. And I started to say to myself, I need to be doing more of that. Then I will admit that meeting you did have an influence on me because it opened up a world of exploring the, the need to – not be involved and not be as politically active as I was, and that by not being involved, I'm actually maybe, perhaps, doing more. Uh, so I started to explore that avenue, like going back to what you were saying before, perhaps uh, it, the whole idea backfired on us because the more people that were involved, the bigger the whole thing is now. So it's kind of like foot-and-mouth syndrome there. Um, Recently, I had lunch with uh, one of the ha- – members of the House of Representatives, former House uh, member of the House of Representatives that I n- know here locally, and we had become friends back in 2008, I think. Uh, we kept in touch, and he was in town recently, so we had lunch, and of course, he asked me if I would run for my district for the House, and I said no. Well, it turned out that a few people on his heels also got in touch with me shortly after that and you know, tried to wrangle me into it. Oh, but we need somebody. We need somebody that, you know, thinks like you and conservative, but freedom minded and things are bad right now. And of course, they lay down the whole kind of, but you owe it to your children. You owe it to the future of your children. It's your responsibility. And, you know, we need, and if we don't get someone in office like this, then it's the same old, same old. Uh, One woman said to me, I know that you've been tossing around this idea of anarchy, but I got to tell you, that's not the way to go because, you know, there's going to be someone in office and if it's going to be anybody, then it might as well be someone that's friendly and, you know, friendly, quote unquote, to the cause. And I Mm -hmm. said, no, you know who needs me right now? My children need me right now. And yes, they, they do need me to help make a better future for them, but they're the ones that are going to be living in that future. So they need their parent right now. They need, they need attention. They need the home education that I'm offering them. Uh, they need me to drive around to their different events and spend the quality time with them so that they are healthy intellectually, spiritually, and physically. And they don't enter the world feeling that they've been neglected in any way because their mother was spending three months out of the year. You know, across the state in the capital. So that was that was why
1: I made the decision. I mean, sorry to you know compare you to the governor, but I mean it's the decision that if you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, the guy what spent eight years as the governor of California, and what I mean he he did not see his children for that Mm -hmm. time. His, His I think Maria lived apart from where he was, so he commuted came back on the weekends, obviously brought work with him, was exhausted, constant interruptions and in emails, was gone, you know, Monday through Friday for eight years of his children's life. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, and for what? For what? What, what did he get done? Know. California is a complete basket case now. It's far worse than when he first got into power. I'm not saying that's his fault. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's his fault or not. He wasn't able to tame the unions. He wasn't able to cut even the increase in the growth of the deficit. He wasn't able to stymie or block any of the unfunded liabilities that, Canada, that California was taking on. He spent eight years not being present in his children's lives. I mean, that's almost half their entire childhood. For you know,
0: what? It is, a, it is a big deal. And Stefan, even if he was unbelievably successful... And even if he was everybody's favorite governor and he did wonderful things and the whole country was better because of him, you still have to look at the fact that His children, the human beings that he brought into this world, suffered. So, you know, I mean, there's the whole, well, it was for the good of the many, so you sacrifice the few. And a lot of people will look at it like that, and I get that. I get why that seems like it's a noble cause. But your children are such a huge responsibility, and they only demand a fraction of the years of your entire life. That's it. That's all they're asking from you. And I think that we need to pay more attention into dedicating our time to that. Now I do realize that we do need to earn a living. We, you know, either the mother or the father, or some in some cases, both of them need to make money in order to bring it in. But there needs to be more focus on balancing that, so that you can still focus on your children. And I I don't want to. Um, support child worship where, you know, you, you have to like completely just stop everything and just lay in bed all day and hug and squeeze and tickle your, you know, your kids. There has to be a balance there, but I don't think enough of us in our society today, even attempt to balance that. We just figure, well, this is the way life is. And, you know, first of all, we are, we are all going to have a legacy. Everybody's going to die. And everybody's going to leave something behind. And it's going to be a memory. It's going to be something you accomplished, something you did. Sometimes it's big. Sometime it, sometimes it's small. But whatever it is that you've done is not as important as the actual human people that are going to go on after you. You know what I mean? Ideas are, are great, but the world is going to turn. The world is going to spin no matter what you do. I'm not saying that you're not going to do something important, but you can do something important and still be an unbelievable parent to your children. Children, And again, they only need you. They only need your focused time and attention for a small fraction of your life, and they deserve it. Do you know uh, who Mitch Snyder was?
1: Oh, the name is familiar. I can't place him.
0: Washington D.C. Uh, circa ninety one, maybe ninety ninety one. He was an mm-hmm. uh, uh, activist for homelessness in America, oh, and okay. he challenged. Okay. Uh, I think it was, it was during the Bush administration. He was very challenging to the president, and he camped out on the lawn, and you know he did all this stuff. That is my husband's father. He died in ninety uh, two, I believe. Now, when you look him up, there's a lot of information about him, and uh, uh, that's why I'm not partial to Wikipedia. I mean, this guy was was my husband's dad. He knows what's true and what's not. But um, he did a lot of great things for homelessness. We would differ. You and I would would probably differ from him if he were alive today in a political perspective. But the fact remains that he did accomplish a lot for homelessness in America. And this was on the heels of the... uh, when they closed down the, the government um, mental hospitals and right, right. we had uh, all the homeless people, I mean, tons and tons of homeless people all over America, all over the streets. So right on the heels of that, enter Mitch Snyder and he did all this work. It was a movie made about him with Martin Sheen. Little known fact is that he left my husband's mother with two little boys, my husband and his brother. He was two at the time. His older brother was four. He just left. He just poof disappeared, and said that he has a calling. So I always think about that, and I say, okay, uh, how is that okay? That he just walked away from his wife and two kids. So we're laying down the red carpet for this guy, and you know we're praising him like he's we're going to canonize him like he's a saint. He left his wife and kids. So I mean, there just has to be some perspective there,
1: right? Yeah, I remember watching the movie Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr. many years ago, and he was off obsessing about his films and the music and putting them all together, and his wife would bring his children by. They'd beg for a moment of his time, and he'd yell at them because he was a perfectionist, and he was all... And he was a monster of a dead, apparently. Uh, Hemingway, a monster of a dead. Um, go through the list. There's a great book by Paul Johnson called Intellectuals about the moral life of the moralizers, you know, the sort of personal family life of people who decided to instruct mankind on its duty. And they're almost universally monstrous uh, at home and, you know, bullies and tyrants and absent. And I kind of look for the local virtues before I will listen to people about the big virtues. Uh, Mm -hmm. How's your relationship? How's, you know, what's your commitment to your family? If you have kids, how do you treat them? I mean, that's what I... Look for, and before I will take anybody's abstract ethics seriously, I will look at what their personal relationships are like because I mean it 's the old thing you don't you don't uh, take anti smoking advice from a chain smoker you know like here's right. how to quit smoking puff 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 right I mean it's silly right uh, they may be right, but the odds are so much against it that uh, you know it's just from an efficiency standpoint you just don 't bother and people love to you know sort of sky write these incredible ethical ideals which they just refuse to enact in their own lives and uh that's tragic and it's also tragic of course that politics hasn't worked i mean wouldn't it be great if it did you know i said uh, in a you know it day, would be
0: great and i think i might be slightly more convinced to to give it more of a go but i did give it a go and All it did was get worse and not saying that I personally made it worse, but I mean, I don't really feel that all the time and energy and effort that I spent really helped all that much. And uh, people can argue and say, well, if there were more of you and if you just kept at it and you kept at it. And I'm like, no, you know what? Because there were nights that I didn't get home until 11 o'clock at night and I didn't tuck my kids in bed. I I need to do that. I need to be there for them. And if everything is going to, you know, hit the fan, like they keep saying, then they need their mother. They need their mother and they need their father and they need the security of a loving, warm, safe household. That's what my children need. And that's what they're going to get. And once they're older and they're on their own, then hopefully I've given them enough security and enough love and enough guidance that, you know, they can be strong and they'll be okay. And then whatever they need to offer the world will be that much more powerful because they came from a strong foundation and a stable background. That is my job right now. I think a lot of times, and I, I probably was guilty of this at some point, uh, there's a little bit of narcissism in all of us where, like, I, I think – my husband's father, Mitch Snyder, his, uh, one of his friends growing up said the same thing. He was a bit of a narcissist. So there, that did play into why he was so into getting in front of the camera and in front of the news conferences and saying, uh, I'm going to go on a fast and I'm going to do all these things until you help the homeless people and you, until you build these shelters. Not that what he did was not a good thing. What he did for the homeless cause was definitely a good thing. But there was a little bit of, look at me, look at what I'm doing in that. There was a little bit of hey, look at Mitch Snyder in there. You know what I'm saying? There, it mm-hmm. wasn't all pure. And that's okay. I get it. It's a human trait. But behind that, he left his family. Now, I've had other arguments with people that will say, you know, that, that's really uh, illogical. It's it's not intelligent to think that way. It's a, a logical fallacy because it's a, a ad hominem. You don't want to judge uh, the action of what he's doing and the goodness of what he's doing by who he was before. It has nothing to do with it. It's irrelevant. I don't think it is irrelevant though. Just like you were saying before, you got to kind of go to the source of it and say, okay, is this person handing me some BS or are they giving me uh, non-smoking advice? And did they actually quit smoking? Are they going home and they're smoking themselves? You know? So there, there, it does require some, some, some substance behind it. Um, I don't oh, want to look, go tra- I mean, off this, track this too is, much. The point is, no, is that no, we ahead. all need to pay more attention to our family. That's the point.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, this, this argument uh, that, that being skeptical of someone's perspective because of their personal life is not, uh, it's not the same as, as ad hominem uh, because uh, we all understand that – look, if, if you're hiring someone, let's say you want to hire some lawyer – and some guy shows up, uh, uh, you know, in a in a thong with a full Incan headdress and uh, a parrot on his shoulder. He may be the very greatest legal mind right. in the world, but but you're not probably going to bother to find out. You're just going to call security and get him off because. So so you'd say well, but you you can't prove that he's not the best legal mind. Just because he wears a thong and an Incan headdress and two parrots, it's like well, but life is short, and we all dress up to go on job interviews, and we all wear pants on the subway and and so on, right? right? And, you know, Danny DeVito can show up and ask for a modeling contract, and you can't, you know, axiomatically prove that he's never going to sell anything because he's Danny DeVito and whatever, right? But, but nonetheless, it would be funny, right? I mean, he showed up on a Friends episode as a male stripper. You can't say, well, Danny DeVito would never be a male stripper. You can't prove that. Mm-hmm. But it's funny that – so there is a, um, an importance in presentation that, that people need to, to understand. Uh, this I is think we'd all like to sometimes. believe that aesthetics bit,
0: don't matter. I, I think we'd like to tell ourselves that we're not that superficial, that aesthetics don't matter, but they do.
1: But, but no, um, it's, it's, it, I think it's more than superficial, though. Like, I mean, the reason we dress up for a job interview is we are telling people by putting on a suit for a job interview, we're telling people, look, I get that there's such a thing as social convention. And mm-hmm. I get that we, there are standards within our society that reasonable people are expected to maintain. And so I'm not going to display, because it's pointless rebellion to show up to a job interview in shorts. You're just shooting yourself in the foot, right? I mean, because you're asking people to surmount a lot of uh, standards for no particular purpose. I mean, what, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. Just throw a suit on. What's, it's not going to kill you. So right. I think showing that you have some conformity to social standards that you understand, it, it's a basic level of empathy. If you show up for a job interview in a bathing suit, you're not showing empathy for the person because you're saying – Well, I feel more comfortable in a bathing suit, and I either have no idea that I'm supposed to wear a suit, or I don't care how I appear to other people. In other words, I don't care about the standards that you expect or anything like that. Now, of course, once you get the job, if you're really great, you can say, look, Fridays are bathing suit Fridays, and here's why. You can negotiate that, but the presentation thing is – uh, is I think it's not shallow. I don't think. I think it is. It is quite important uh, uh, because life is very short. We don't have time to evaluate everyone all the time in in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and um, so, presentation I think is is a way of uh, really cutting through the clutter and at least eliminating people who are real outliers in terms of empathy and social understanding.
0: You know, it's interesting. You're you're uh, reminding me of a very uh, interesting and kind of fascinating. Perspective on humanity that's been manifesting with me lately i'd say it's probably over the recent few months or even year that I've been uh, doing a lot of a lot more uh, work in home education there seems to be um, i don't even know what to call it this this trend in parenting that portrays itself as very free thinking and very into the kids and very respectful of the kids. Um, But if you take a deeper look at it, it's... It's a little disturbing because I actually I, – I think we're doing more harm than good when we start to go in this direction. This is uh, another thing that I'm trying to encourage parents to do and another reason why I've made a lot of the decisions that I made because I realize it's just not about me saying, look how cool I am. I'm such a cool parent. I'm a home educator and you know we do this with the kids and we do that with the kids and I'm just so damn cool. I think that is – uh, a, a sickness that has infected a lot of society. And uh, it's, it's like that, that narcissism problem again. And what you were saying is reminding me of an incident. Uh, this is one example I could think of, but it's, it's, it clearly illustrates back to what you were talking about, where a mother uh, that is a home educating mother and considers herself very free spirited and cool. And I'm so cool. And my kids are so cool. And we just all do what we want and we don't force anything, blah, 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 was talking about um, how her kids were outside playing and the neighbors were rolling their eyes around and kind of complaining that the kids were so loud. And she laughed and she said, ha ha. Yeah, that's my family. We're so loud. Deal with it because we're just free spirited and we're not in school and deal with it. And I'm thinking, okay, so you go on and on about how you trust your children and respect your children like they're adults and they could just, you know, play and carry on and do whatever they want. Why don't the neighbors get any respect? Why isn't that okay? And, of course, the argument was, well, I'm just going to conform to society standards. I'm like, wow, you're just a rebel for the sake of being a rebel. Well, what's the point of that? And that's what you were reminding me of when you were talking about showing up to work in shorts, uh, showing up to an into in shorts. It's just to... Purposeful rebellion for no reason. There's no substance to it for the sake of being rebellious, and the problem bringing it back to parenting is when we're not focused on our family and we get so wrapped up in trend and whatever else is going on. We are we're so easily swayed, but what, why other people? What other people are doing um, and why they're doing it, and look how cool everybody is. Instead of teaching your kids empathy and respect for all people, that the, your neighbors matter, people matter. And this is what I think we're really lacking. So I, I think, you know, we're just paying our attention in, in the wrong direction. And if the choices between being active in politics or being with your family, you need to be more with your family, especially when the kids are kids, because the more we breed this kind of selfishness and this kind of narcissistic behavior, Things are just going to continue to get worse, so we need to pay attention to that with our children.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this. Yeah, somebody, somebody in the next house might have a migraine. It might be somebody ill. I mean, this is something you would discuss with your neighbors and uh, uh, not just say, "Well, we're loud." And I mean, that's just not not a good negotiating, and certainly not empathetic. And. Um, You know, like I mean, would they like if the neighbor's son started practicing drumming on the front lawn at four o'clock in the morning? Well, we're just musically spontaneous; we're jamming. (laughs) It's not that great, but this also I think foster a
0: good community.
1: It doesn't, and the other thing too is that this is the great challenge I think, and I, I I try to resist this myself as a parent, which is the children as vanity object. That is, that to me is, is one of the toughest. I mean, I'm so incredibly proud and, and admiring of my daughter. Uh, she is, in some ways, the person I want to be. <laughs> you know, like she really <laughs> yeah, is. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. She is somebody I look up to enormously, and she has a massive amount to teach me in terms of confidence, in terms of um, uh, non retaliatory <laughs> feelings, and so on. Like, if she's, you know, if I bump her or whatever, she just says that she's upset, but there's never any retaliatory aspect to her or whatever. And, So uh, I admire her so much and there is that temptation. I don't know if you have it or if you resist it successfully. I'm sure you do. But uh, to look upon your children as looking good on me kind of thing. And I think that has something to do. Like if the mom is like, well, we're just these kinds of people. It's like, well, how much is the kid just conforming to that because that's kind of necessary for the mother's vanity or the father's.
0: Yeah, well, I think she needs she needed to maintain her her posture in her community and how her peers looked at her. So, she needs to make sure that her children are always looking like, you know, however she wants them to look so that she feels like she's, you know, preaching a good message or whatever. I don't know. She, the whole thing gets on my nerves anyway. That whole kind of uh trend i keep going back to the word trend gets under my skin to begin with but i i do understand what you mean about that uh there is that temptation to stand behind your children and kind of you know rub your hand on your chest a little bit and say yeah i did that that's me that, those are my he's kids he's good on me yeah yes. yeah exactly my child, they look you good, look good, good, on good me. as that's a my, fashion accessory it like when i'm at the baseball game and my my kid slams a home run i do stand up from the bleachers and go yeah my boy that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know but I think it's appropriate at a baseball game when you incorporate that into your whole life it's a little bit different you know or when my son was in a play and people came up and said wow he did really good I liked it it felt good but you can't incorporate that into your whole life and that's why I try to not use my children as props in my work when I did Unplugged Mom, I think my daughter appeared on one of the shows with me, and that's because she really, really wanted to, and I finally said, okay, you can you can do one of the shows with me and have a conversation. But I very rarely mention their names. Uh, if any time I ever mention my kids' names, I very rarely write any, pers- any articles or blogs that are personal about my own kids. I do have a, a home education blog specifically for Uh, home education to give like ideas and, and tips and tricks. So I will talk about what we do. And that's just recently, but I still don't mention like real kind of detailed information. I try to never use them as props. I don't put pictures of them on professional websites. I don't put them in front of the camera. I just don't do that because I, I want to try to maintain that separation So I I do understand the temptation to do that, but I, I don't want to. And I also want to respect their privacy. They did not ask to be part of this. So I don't want to force them to be part of it just to say, look, like how great of a, of a mom I am. I'm like so cool. I mean, there are some things that happen here and there that I feel are share worthy and I will do that. But I try to share it if it's really share worthy, if it's really like something that's that's really cool or that I think is going to be helpful but I try not to incorporate it into everything. Just like you'll use examples. You'll tell stories of when you were, you know, showing your daughter a certain thing and, you know, how she responded or whatever. But you don't put her in front of the camera and say, hey, look, it's all about her. It's all about, you know, my daughter and everything. It's tempting, but you have to try to steer steer clear of that because it's supposed to be about them growing up and becoming healthy, independent, Individuals, not about you standing on their shoulders and saying, Look how cool I am.
1: Yeah. So, do you think that there's anything that can be gained through political involvement and activism? Again, I mean, I would love for there to be. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to do this confrontational deal with your personal relationships, family, parenting, non spanking, peaceful, this, that, and the other? Because that stuff is, you know, huge. There's a reason why, you know, there's a reason why (laughs) Murray Rothbard. Didn't really write about parenting, and Ayn Rand didn't really write about parenting, and uh, you know Milton Friedman didn't really write about. I don't know that there's been much libertarian parenting books uh, out there, because no, it but is I such think there needs to be.
0: Topic.
1: I think yeah, there needs yeah. to be.
0: I've known a lot of libertarian parents. Uh, I'm one myself, and I think there needs to be more talk about raising your kids with a a freedom-minded perspective. And uh, healthy intelligence, healthy mind, healthy body, healthy spirit, and also a sense of community and a sense of respect for other human beings and a sense of empathy. I think there needs to be more conversations about that. And that's why I said, you know, I still i am willing to participate. I'm still willing to do the work that I do. I just have to take it down a few notches because if I'm going to talk about this stuff, then I need to do this stuff. I have to walk the walk before I can really talk the talk. Other words, everything I'm saying is, is useless. It doesn't make any sense. And then I could do even more work when my kids are grown, you know, and I'll have those years to bolster my wisdom. Um, But, I mean, of course, that question has come up, too, if I will eventually uh, get more involved politically and run for office at that time. And I don't know. You know, I don't know. There was a time that I would have said, yeah, yeah, you know, later on in my life, maybe I'll get involved or whatever, but I don't know. Unfortunately, I don't think that humanity is close to a truly peaceful, volunteerist society. I think that um, we can certainly work toward it and we can continue to work toward it and talk about it. But I don't think we're going to see that in our lifetime. Unfortunately, I hope that my grandchildren see the beginnings of it in their lifetime. So there are going, there is going to be politics and there is going to be problems. Um, And I, I, I hate to encourage anyone that really does feel like they can make a difference not to do it, but Stefano, I don't know. I just, I, I it's just all such bullshit. I, I don't know how else to put it.
1: <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, it's all.
0: You know, when I look back at my time now, the time that I did spend when I was so involved, I feel dirty. I do. I feel dirty. I feel like my skin is tainted with the dirt of bureaucracy and BS because it was a dirty, dirty game. Anyone that says, Oh, but I'm an honest politician is, is not because you just cannot be in that world and not get involved in some kind of sneaky underhanded business. There is just, there was just so much going on that was so dirty. You realize that you, in order to be here, in order to accomplish anything, you have to, you have to just play. You have to play this game or else you're just going to get trampled. And it sucks that it's like that, but it is like that. I don't want it to be like that. And I think we have, you know, new zealots entering politics every year that think that they're going to change it and they're going to make it different. But unfortunately, it's the other way around. It changes them. And it's really unfortunate and it's really sad. Um, And like I said, I think that we can definitely – still have conversations about moving society in a better direction, but it's going to take a while. It's going to take a long time. So whether or not I'm going to get involved when my kids are older, I don't think so. I think my work is in focusing on family and the productiveness and the health of the family because that's like the root. You know what I mean? You have to really Get things at the root. I think we just spend so much time swiping at branches and pruning leaves and trying to paint the branches and and the limbs, and we're not paying attention to the root. The next generation that's coming up, they're the ones that are going to change the world because everybody else is going to die off. You know? I don't know. I
1: think the other thing, too, is that the tough thing about politics, I think, is – if I were to go into politics, then I would have to, like most politicians, spend the huge majority of my time fundraising. I mean that's that's all you do because <laughs> your politics is almost all about the money. I mean obviously plus some intangible charisma thing. But you have to try and raise money and then you have to get on the phone and mm-hmm. you have to get people to give you money. And how are you going to get them to give you money? Well, I couldn't say – Give me money so that I will save the republic. I will restore the constitution. Uh, I will limit government. I will give you school vouchers. I, because none of those things can be promised. And in fact, I mean, the, the Ron Paul and even Rand Paul, it's, it's a long line of heroic-speaking, uh, utterly ineffective people who went into politics, right? I mean, uh, Gary Goldwater was going to save the GOP. He was the most libertarian candidate, really, I think that's ever run outside of Ron Paul. Of course, uh, I mean, if you look at Ronald Reagan, who was supposed to be the big hero and savior of statism, and the federal government grew by two-thirds under his watch. And uh, it, this thing just goes on and on. Uh, and in the, the Republicans have always talked smaller government, but entitlement spending goes up faster under Republican administrations than it does under Democrat uh, administrations. So, And I, I don't think it's because people lack conviction. It's just that the entire system is so set up that it's impossible to get things done. The system has had... The statism has had thousands of years to defend itself against people who want to shrink it. I mean <laughs> the whole system, yeah. the mindset, the setup, the, the laws, the precedents, the, the whole – so how could – what would I say to people? I, what would I say to people? Would I say to people, well, I, I, I am not going to be able to shrink government. I, I can't even prove to you that anything I do is going to even slow down its rate of growth. So can you give me some money? But that would be you truth know- in advertising, Right.
0: Is a good analogy trying to shrink the ocean by throwing another bucket of water into it, thinking, well, this bucket of water is going to make the ocean shrink?
1: You, know? oh, you mean taking a bucket of water out? Um, yeah, I no, mean, by throwing it, a it,
0: bucket of water into it. Like you can't really shrink the size and scope of it by joining forces with it, can you? I think uh, people enter it with a lot of conviction thinking, well, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to shrink government. But it's like, well, you just ran for office, though. You just became one of the government. Like, oh, you know?
1: I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to I'm going to pee into the swimming pool to make it all dry. No, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now it's just polluted and a little bigger. Well, um, I think I think that people do want to go into government to to shrink it. I mean, I really I have no doubt that that's the case. Uh, I, I have no reason to doubt the integrity of Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan no, uh, or yeah, I think either of the Bushes or Ron intentions. Paul.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah. when someone says, you know, uh, well, I love you, and the person says, I know you think you do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. I think they're, they're honest Please about their intentions. Nice.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, but, but the whole system is set up. So, so the first thing you'd have to do is you, you have to mislead people as to the possibilities that you can achieve, right? And that's, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do. I mean, already you're kind of corrupted. So you have to give people the impression that giving you money or supporting you is going to shrink the state or, you know, slow its growth or something like that. You have to make that uh, something that people will believe because that's why they give you money. Because if you say, well, I'm not going to be able to shrink the state, but I'm going to make people in general more aware of how bad the state is by being in the government. Like, I'm join the mafia so I can tell everyone how bad the mafia is. Right. Well… You don't really need politics to educate people, particularly in the age uh, of, of the internet. I mean, you know, your show does tons. My show does tons. Lots of people's show does, uh, do, do, does a huge amount of, of stuff in terms of education. So, and, and the other thing is even if you do get into power, you have 100 meetings a day of people whose entire life has been focused on this one meeting to get you to give them something. Mm-hmm. That's pretty tough. That's a pretty tough kind of day, just saying no to everyone. Ron Paul doesn't do it. I mean Ron Paul sends a huge amount of federal money back to his districts. I mean he Pork spends like like uh, nobody's business. He's one of the most successful people in getting federal money to go. So he doesn't say no. Well he says, you know, he'll say no in Congress because it doesn't mean a damn thing. But he'll say yes to, you know, every Tom Dick and Harry who comes into his door with a (laughs) with a business plan written in Crayola on their foreheads. (laughs) And so, uh, how how do you have meetings where people come in and they've they've literally worked for years to get this meeting, and they probably donated a huge amount of money to you? I mean that's how it works according to Joe Biden. You know the guy who who donates ten thousand bucks to you or twenty thousand or whatever, he gets the meeting. That's just the way it works. You you know he calls you up and he says, well, I'd like that meeting now, and you say yes because of course you want reelection and you don't want to burn your. So then he comes in and he gave you ten, twenty, thirty, fifty, whatever it is thousand dollars or arranged for that to be. You know, he was running some super PAC that spent a huge amount of money on you. And then he says, listen, I need this. What do you say? I mean, if you say to the people ahead of time, not only will I not shrink the size and power of the state, but I'm going to block every possibility of giving you one thin dime in any kind of government benefit once I get into office. Please give me some money. You just, you can't be honest because nobody's going to give you money. If you tell them the truth about your capacity to shrink the state and if you are absolutely honest and, and, and say uh, – and true to your convictions and say, if you come to me for one thin dime, I'm always going to say no no matter what. I'm going to give you no preferential legislation. I'm going to give you no benefits, no bonuses, no subsidies, nothing. No tax breaks, no lobbying, no licensing, nothing. Well, I, mean, I don't think you could ever just, get just- elected that way.
0: No, it, the, the whole system is, is self-contradictory. It's, it's entirely set up so that it can eat itself. And right. it, I think that there were people in history that have made differences in the world, and I don't know how many of them have been politicians. Uh, I think I, that would be an interesting project for me to research and maybe go over as a history lesson with my kids because i'm I'm wondering about the people that have really had significant positive change on the world um, and how many of them were played this game, how many of them actually played this game and as you're you're speaking and I'm thinking the theme that we're talking about here is parenting versus politics I mean I could or any mother or any father that's thinking about the same thing. And believe me, I understand how it feels to be really riled up about something and really feel like I have a purpose, I have a calling, I have to get involved in this, I can change this, I know I can do it. I know how it feels to have those feelings. I've had those feelings. For a long time I've had those feelings. And you feel really ambitious and you're just sure that if you can convince enough people that, you know, you can really make an impact, you can really make a difference. And then you start to feel like you owe it to the world. I owe it to my community. I owe it to my world. It's my responsibility. I have to do this. And that's really some weight to put on your shoulders, you know. When they get
1: older, my kids will understand why I did what I did. And right, exactly. Forward and forward. Like, yeah. you know,
0: because I'm, I'm paving, I'm making a brighter future for my kids. But think about, think about That And if you're out there and you're listening and you're thinking, well, yeah, I do feel that. I do feel that conviction. I do feel that energy. And, you know, I got to make a difference. I got to do something. I can't just, you know, sit at home and watch Fox News and do nothing. You're not doing nothing. If you're a parent, then you especially are not doing nothing. I'm thinking about the scenario that you just painted and how futile the whole thing really is. And believe me, I know I didn't run for office, but I did do a lot of things. I was very involved and I I was very involved in my, in my County. And, you know, I went to all the meetings and all of the uh, conventions and everything else. And it's very, very dirty. If you think that you're going to clean it up, not by yourself, you're not. And you know, that doesn't happen, but think about that scenario that you just painted And think about a day in the life of a parent where all you really have to do is be honest. Like you actually have to be honest. You should be honest. You don't have to lie. You don't have to ask them for money. You don't have to ask them to vote for you. You don't have to win them over. You don't even have to be charismatic if you don't feel like being charismatic that day. All you need to do is love them. And that is going to have a greater positive impact on the future than anything you do at your capital. And, you know, that might be shocking for some people to hear, but I'm starting to see that it's true because my three children can enter the world and make so much more of a positive impact if they had a healthy foundation from the beginning. But if not, then I'm sending three people into the world that have been damaged.
1: Right. And there is more than theory at work. There's evidence. There's actual empirical evidence that if you want to make the world a better place you focus on on parenting so for instance i mean, I just this is a few of, of the many countless uh, ways that you can prove this and I'll, I'll keep this brief but so Lloyd DeMoss um, uh, psycho historian he has done work where he said okay so in the Eastern Bloc countries uh, after the fall of, of communism uh, it took some time to establish a working democracy and it, it varied between the countries and what he did was he said, I'm going to correlate infant mortality with how long it took for that country to achieve a stable functioning, you know, using the words of the losers in, in the mainstream sense, a stable functioning democracy, which we will, I think, admit is better than the communist hell they all crawled out of. And he found that it was directly correlated. So the more infant mortality there was, the longer it took. For these countries to achieve a democracy, and the shorter the infant mortality, and it's very strongly correlated. Now, I know correlation is not causation, and so on, but this is a way of saying that if you, if we accept that infant mortality is a rough way of saying how well are children treated, how well are they cared for uh, in the society, well, the societies where the children were better cared for achieved democracy that much sooner. And one other example. Is, so so I mean it didn't matter who were the politicians mm-hmm. or who was making writing blogs it only mattered how well they how they were uh, parented the children were parented another example is they did uh, of course in in uh, in Germany uh, in, in the last century, the parenting was unbelievably brutal, by far the worst parenting that you could imagine uh, in, in Europe happened in Germany uh, for a variety of reasons, but mostly to do with the fact that they, they had 150 years of religious warfare and missed the whole enlightenment and therefore never went through the Rousseauian revolution of thinking of children as non-evil and so on. So, I mean, they were just unbelievably brutal to their children, which is why they had a totalitarian history for the first half of the 20th century, and there's very strong studies to, to show that up. But the other thing that's um, very interesting is there were, of course, you know, generally three types of Germans in the 1930s and the 1940s with regards to the Jews or the other people being persecuted as part of the Holocaust. The first were those who participated to various degrees of enthusiasm. The second was those who didn't really like it but didn't act. And the third were those who acted to protect, to shelter, to create the Underground Railroad to get people out or at least try and keep them safe. You know, the kind of people who were keeping Anne, uh, Anne Frank in the attic. Mm-hmm. And in-depth interviews with hundreds and hundreds of Germans on this issue found no difference in levels of education between these three groups, found no difference in terms of professional attainment, found no difference in terms of geography, found no difference in anything except one aspect, and only one aspect, which was how they were raised as very young children. That was the only difference that could even remotely be statistically found to be significant. And this was enormously significant in that it was the sole variable that could be found to to explain these differences. So the ones who actively helped uh, the Jews and other victims of Nazism were parented peacefully and, uh, and positively. And those who were Opposed but didn't act were sort of spanked more and and yelled at more and hit more and and punished more and those who participated had brutal childhoods and so you know if you you, by the time the Nazis come along it's too late to change anyone's mind but the people who really helped were those who'd been parented peacefully and you know so and again this is just one of countless examples you can look up Robin Grills Parenting for a Peaceful World for more Psychohistory.com for more um, the Origins of War and Child Abuse is a book that I'm reading by Lloyd Demars. It's available on my website uh, and the book section is an audiobook. Uh, it, it seems to be enormously clear that the quality of a society is significantly, I would say overwhelmingly, determined by the quality of parenting. And this is what it means. If you want your society be, be, to be peaceful, getting politically involved with a whole bunch of traumatized people, <laughs> which is relative to the future, what the existing civilization the almost way always go. is can't do it. It's, it's, it's nonsense. It's like trying to, uh, you know, go to a, a fat farm and, and start a, a, a Cirque du Soleil. Like, sorry, it's not going to work. Uh, you have to do to start, start laying the foundation for the freedom of the future in the here and now. And it's not politics, it's parenting.
0: You know, I would argue, Stefan, that it's not significantly determined by, but almost completely determined by because it's very basic. This is We're talking about very, very basic physics here. One generation replaces the next. People die and children grow up. And then they grow up and they die and their children grow up. This is a very simple cycle that we're talking about here. And it, with all of that proof that you just talked about, the most re- recent proof is in our own history right here in this country, in America. Uh, I'm not quite certain uh, how far reaching that was, but I, I would venture to guess that the whole world changed after world war II. let um, Let's just look at our history. Let's look at the inception of mandatory compulsory schooling where hmm. suddenly all children had to go to school and that, that, you know, kind of all within the same few decades of more women going to work and the boom of feminism. Now we have more children in school more women going to work. So more, even more children have to go to school. And now we have government raising kids instead of parents raising kids. And society is getting more stressed out, more tired. People could argue that a lot of people were making more money. Okay. A lot of people making more money. So what does that mean? They're spending more money. We're consuming more money. So we're better trained to want more. So we feel like we're not happy. We're not satisfied unless we get more. So now we want more. Now we're gonna show examples to our children of it's not about the quality time that you and I spend, it's about how many gadgets we can have in our house. That's what that's where happiness is, is how much we can have. And we can't have that unless we're working. So we have to work more. And dad comes home and he's tired. And you know, little Johnny wants to play baseball, and dad says, I can't, son, I'm tired. I've been working, and they get into an argument. He says, you know. How do you think you have all these things? How do you think you have the PlayStation? How do you think you have, you know, your ATVs and and all this stuff that you have? It's because I work and I work my ass off and I slave away so you can have all of these things. So now Johnny thinks, okay, well, that must be important. It's important to work and slave away and make all this money so we can have things because that's what daddy says is making us happy instead of going out in the yard and tossing a ball with me, which is free. So this is, this is kind of the cycle that has been going on generation after generation, especially since we've been telling women, oh, you have to go to work. You have to earn your own paycheck. You have to get out of the house. You just don't want to be a housewife, do you?
1: You want to get won't out be there. fulfilled You're, playing with yeah, your you children, go, what you, you really want to do. Fulfilled.
0: You want to get out there yeah. and you want to bring home the bacon and you want to work nine to five and you want to do all this. Well, how has that worked out for us? Let's examine the last few decades. How has that worked out for us? Do we have better family values now? Do we have smaller government now? Are we more free now? Are we economically in better condition now? Do we have less sick people Or do we have more people on psychotropic drugs? Do we have more depression, more disorders, more ADD, more stress, more suicides, more people flipping out and inflicting violence on other people? Do we have more violence or less violence? So how has that all worked out for society where we're spending more time paying attention to work? and politics and less time paying attention to our family isn't it time now that we kind of just stop the flow and say whoa 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 maybe we do need to spend more time with our family maybe it is fulfilling for a parent to spend time with their children because it's free it really doesn't cost you any money it costs you money to buy your kid a playstation and plop them down and say I'm going to go have a glass of wine while you play with the PlayStation. But it doesn't cost you any money to giggle and roll around on the floor or go to the library together and learn something or go to the park together and have a nature walk. So, yeah, there is a a financial issue. You do have to pay the mortgage and, you know, you do have to bring in a paycheck. But it's, it's significant that one of the parents takes a chunk of their lives a decade, maybe 15 years of their lives and says, I'm not going to work. I'm going to pay attention to you and I'm going to focus on you. And no, I really don't think that politics is the answer anymore because it, it hasn't been. It hasn't been. And like you were saying, correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah, I get that. But there's a point where you have to just say, okay, there's a little too much evidence here for me to ignore. We really have to do something here. We really have to pay attention here. So I could spend another eight years of my life fighting with these other yahoos at the Capitol and living there for three months out of the year, because it's too far for me to commute every day Uh, or I could spend the next eight years of my life with my children. And again, it's the fun. It's very basic. If I'm absent from their lives and they grow up missing a mother or father or missing some very basic attention, I'm sending three broken people into the world. Or I can dedicate and focus my energy on them and send three healthy people into the world. Who's going to offer the world a better chance at peace and compassion, broken people or healthy people? This is very simple, very simple principles. And then by default, they will spend more time with their family. Because that's what they're used to. That's how they've been raised. That they've accepted that as normal life. So when they get married and they start having families, they start having children, they will treat their children respectfully and peacefully and spend time with them and focus on them. Because that's how they've been raised. Chances are they'll seek out a mate that agrees with them because we often do seek out people that are, you know, on the same wavelength as we are, hopefully. So especially if they're healthy, mentally healthy and spiritually healthy they'll probably have healthier relationships so the cycle will continue but you send people into the world having missing something and i hate to sound cliche but maybe freud had a point maybe it is all the mother's fault <laughs>
1: <laughs> right yeah and look i mean there's i mean this is a it's a pretty dark subject but i think it's it's worth talking about since we mentioned freud of course one of the great disasters, I think, of of modern history was the fact that when Freud began to develop psychoanalytics, uh, psychotherapy, when he began to develop that, he was given, of course, lots of patients, uh, a lot of women and some men who had hysterical symptoms, right? They're blind, but there was nothing wrong with their eyes. They couldn't feel their arm, but there was nothing wrong with their arm and that kind of stuff. And he found, of course, as he delved into it, that the children had been cruelly and repetitively sexually violated his children and this was I- I- shockingly common uh, in the Vienna of the uh, late uh, 19th century and he began to talk about these findings and the prevalence of it and uh, he was just of course viciously attacked by all of the people who prey upon children, and he, th- he then backed down, which I think was one of the great catastrophes of modern history. And, and it's piling a lot on the guy and all that, but um, nonetheless, um, both he and Jung appear to have also been molested as children, which is not great for the birth of uh, uh, of this particular discipline. But uh, because he backed down and then transmuted the actual rape of children into what he called the sexual fantasies of children, the Electra and eatable complexes, uh, I I mean, I really do believe that that laid the foundation for World War I. Uh, If children are rescued, war becomes much less likely, if not impossible. But if children are betrayed, war becomes that much more likely. And this has been a continual problem throughout the, the 20th century and into the 21st century. Uh, the prevalence of, of childhood sexual abuse is, I mean, it's just shocking. And the, the statistics vary widely and the measurements vary widely. But, um, you know, it's uh, two in, in five boys and three in five girls re- report some significant misconduct, let's say, before the age of 18. In some studies, the average age of, or sorry, the average length of the sexual abuse has been five years. So, If, you know, uh, up to half the population has experienced some form of this and a smaller proportion has experienced significant and repetitive child rape, I think we should really start with that. You can't build a free society on victims of childhood rape. And if they're a significant portion of the population, it's just not going to work because they're too traumatized. They're too, uh, you know, without a huge amount of of investment and help. I mean, it's – you can't build a castle on such a shaky foundation if we can – And I do believe that having parents at home who are involved in their children's lives and and in continual contact with them throughout the days and weeks and months and years, that the prevalence of uh, child abuse, certainly sexual abuse and so on, would would hopefully be less. I'm sure it would be. So that's another thing that happens, of course, if you stay home, is you protect your children from anybody outside the immediate family who would do them harm, which, unfortunately, there is a distressingly large number of people who will do that, Uh, from from priests to daycare workers to relatives to friends to friends' parents to whatever it is. And this is another thing, of course, that you do when you're home is you keep your children safer. And by keeping your children safer, you significantly contribute to the peace of the world. I mean, you're out there doing politics 12, 14 hours a day. Who is protecting your kids, especially if one parent is working, the other one's doing politics? Well... You've just lost control of their protection.
0: Mm -hmm. I'd like to point out also that when you say protecting your kids, I think a lot of people have in their minds, especially when they hear from someone like me who's a home-educating parent, uh, they equate protection with shelter. And, oh, they must be sheltering their kids. And then they hear the word shelter and they – put a negative spin on it, like we're overprotective somehow, or we don't let our kids out of the house, or we lock them up in the house, and we never let them out, and that's our way of protecting them. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about when we say protect them. It simply means that when you are an active parent, and by active parent, I mean you're actively part of your child's life, which you're supposed to be, you're aware of who they are. They're aware of who you are. Mm-hmm. You know who they are as a person. You know who their friends are. You know where they are during the day. Even when they're not in your immediate sight, you know where they are. You know where they're going. You develop a trust factor. So if, you're, if your teenager says, I'm at the library, you trust that they are actually at the library and not at a strip club because you have a relationship with them and you develop a mutual trust factor and a mutual respect. That's what we mean by You're able to protect your children is because you're able to have that closeness with them and that uh, intimacy and that relationship uh, where. You communicate with each other and you know what their activities are, are, you know what their social life is, you know who the boyfriends and girlfriends are, you know who their friends are, and you have some influence and not by force. You don't force them to uh, hang out with certain people or forbid them from hanging out with other people, but because you do have that close relationship, they are naturally able to make better decisions about Who they spend their time, uh, or with whom they spend their time. I hate to end with a preposition. (laughs) Um, So that's uh, very right. This is that's very that's very very important.
1: It's an important thing to mention that that the best security your child has is this strong bond with the parent. I mean, if you're some god awful child molester or whatever, every time you prey upon a child, of course you're taking a huge gamble because if that child runs straight home, tells mama, mama phones the cops. Uh, then he's in jail
0: mm-hmm.
1: for uh, years and years and years. And, of course, you don't want to be a child molester in jail. You won't do very well. So every time he he, he picks on a child or she picks on a child, it's um, it's a huge gamble. And they get very good at knowing who they can prey on. Well, another, you know, another like point. Like the lions, they like to prey on the sick and the old and the weak.
0: Is statistically, and we can we can do it to scale because I realize that I, I think there are, oh, God, I think – it's close to 3 million families now. I think the latest was close to 3 million families now in America that home educate. So that, you know, that's still a small fraction of the society in general, but you have to do it to scale. And statistically, if you uh, measure it to scale, there are f- significantly less incidents, uh, less than 1% of home educating families that are found to be, uh, abusive or sexually abusive or neglectful. And that's, that's always what you hear. Well, you know, we have to regulate home education because the parents might abuse the kids, but statistically there's really no concern there. But if you examine the abuse that goes on in schools, that's where abuse is happening. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse from other students, from peers, from teachers from people exerting uh, improper authority. And then, you know, let's not even get started on the abuse that happens with the religious sector. That's a whole other conversation. So the kids that are not in a secure family situation, these are the kids that are getting abused on a daily basis. And the, the only, um, so I will, let, let's examine that for one second. Most of our, the majority of our children in society are in school. Being exposed to almost daily forms of abuse, whether it be emotional, mental, physical, or sexual. They're being exposed to some kind of abuse daily for 15 years of their lives. These are the people that are entering society. And these are the people that are going to enter the quote-unquote real world when they're adults and shape society, Whether it be a democracy or a republic or a volunteer society, these are the people that are going to shape it. What's the likelihood that it's going to get better if we keep pushing out generation after generation of kids that have spent their entire childhood being abused? I mean, this is, again, very basic, very basic math, very simple concept to understand. The only thing that I want to point out for listeners is that um, we, in our conversation, it's all very important, the things that we're mentioning, and, and child abuse is very important, very significant to mention, but I want to clarify that I don't think either of us are trying to uh, create a false paradigm where you know, if you're not staying home and focused on your kids, then you must be a, a sexual abuser. I I don't, you know, I don't, there are parents that are just spending a little bit too much time at work and not focused on their children that I I think you're still doing damage, but I don't necessarily think that you're uh, molesting your child. Um, So there, there is, there are nuances there. My (laughs)
1: argument, yeah, no, my argument is simply, and, and you can, of course, have open lines of communication. If you're a working parent, if both parents are working, you know, if you take the time to connect, if you have those open lines of communication, right. uh, the, the children who are most likely to be attacked or bullied or assaulted or molested or whatever are the children, in my opinion, I'm no expert, but uh, are the children who don't have that clear line of communication, who go, who don't go straight home and tell their parents what happened, either because they feel they'd be blamed or the parent will just get angry or the parent will provoke and make things worse or, or they just would never imagine it because the parent is not there for them. So if you're working, you can still protect oh, your children, absolutely. the thing thing is is to have this open line of communication. So your child is constantly communicating his or her experience. The predators sense that, and they stay away from that. And you know, the lions pick on the old, the sick, and the weak. And it's, it's the same thing with parenting. I think it's easier. Uh, and and more likely to be uh, a deeper relationship if you're home. That's just a matter of physics, you know, relationships are proximity. Even if you're around more and you're present more, then it's going to be deeper for the most part. But yeah, it certainly can be the case that you can protect your kids if you're both working. Uh, I just think that's the really key thing to to focus on is to make sure that if there's ever a problem, your kids will come directly to you and tell you everything. That's the thing you need to encourage most because that will almost certainly ensure, I would imagine, uh, or I believe, that there will not be problems. Right.
0: Well, the key is to be active and be involved in your children's lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being involved in your children's lives. Um, There's nothing, I think, you know, we like to paint this picture of, well, we want to give them freedom. We want to give them independence. We don't want to, we can't Draw this, this, this again, this false dichotomy where there's one extreme or the other extreme. Either we're, you know, rebel parents and our kids come and go as they please and we're totally free or we're authoritarian. I think it's okay to maintain a balance and to embrace your responsibility as a parent and say, look, you're, I brought you into this world. It's uh, my responsibility to guide you, give you advice, give you support, and have conversations with you. And you find that when you are an active, involved parent, You don't need to be tyrannical. You don't need punishments. You don't need to forbid. You simply have open communication and you talk about things. I don't think I've ever forbade any of my kids from doing anything. If they wanted to do something I felt was a little bit too dangerous or that they weren't ready for, and only the parent can really judge that because you know your child or you're supposed to know your child, then I would talk about it with them and we would reach a decision. And if they decided that they really wanted to go ahead and do it, I just made sure that I was a safety net for them, that I was there because I knew that it was going to get messed up and it did. And I was there when it did. If it was something extremely dangerous, Then I would just say, okay, I don't really think so. And here's why I never just said no, because I said so, because I don't think that's respectful. I don't like that. Um, But the idea is not to quit your job and just throw yourself at your kid 100 percent. If you need to work, you need to work. I get that. I understand that. It's about balancing. So many parents say, well, I need to work. Therefore, they go to work for 8 to 10, sometimes 12 hours a day. They come home and they say, well, I worked all day. I did my responsibility. Uh, I'm done. I'm just going to like turn on the TV and I need to relax now. I need to chill because I just worked all day so you can have that PlayStation. So you just sit down and be grateful you're working all day and i applaud you for that because it takes a lot of energy but guess what you still have to pay attention you still have to have a conversation with your kid when you come home and i'm you know i hate to sound so judgmental but i think that's what happens and that's why i also advise parents reevaluate your situation when you say well i both of us have to work do you do you you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of consumerism going on there that if we if we release our dependence on that, then we could make a lot of changes. I don't wanna I I've been
1: yeah, downsize. Yeah, you could downsize. You know, my, exactly. my car is like 15 years old. It's got no cruise control, no ABS, no air conditioning. The radio doesn't work half the time. One of the door locks doesn't work. I mean, the half the. I mean, just downsize. Just, I mean, because I would rather have more time with my daughter than a new car. You know, that's just that's just the reality of things. A car is not going to drive up to my deathbed and hold my hand when I slip into the great beyond. Uh, it's going to be my daughter who that's is, exactly I hope is going to want to be there. Uh, and it's the relationships that's that exactly matter.
0: That's exactly it. You You know, I'm not going to be clutching a coach bag when I kick off and I'm not going to take it with me. But I mean, hopefully the the love and the relationship will live on through my children. And, you know, that's what I'd like to see. I've been accused when I say things like this. I've been accused of being privileged and a princess and I don't understand how the other side lives. And, you know, it's really sad that uh people think that by hearing me because uh, people that know me in real life know that I drive what I like to call a vintage car <laughs> <laughs> that's better than saying right. old piece of it. shit it's i tell people it's not it's right. not crappy it's vintage i'm just really into the vintage look <laughs>
1: It's not it's not that it has all these different colors. It's it's really it's an abstract expressionistic right, right. Car. Oh, no. uh you know, like that old Adam Sandler. The car. thing is that you, you
0: there are people that yes, they have to. Just to make ends meet, they have to work. But unfortunately you still have to make an effort to have a relationship with your child. And there are ways to keep them out of school uh, in in households where both parents work or even in single parent households, which there are a lot of single parent households that home educate. Um, but on top of that, I, I do believe that many of us can reevaluate our financial situation and really, really ask ourselves, can I give certain things up? Are there things, can we downsize, can we have less? Um, and what is, the, what is the reasoning for doing that? Because my child is worth it. Because my child is worth it. They don't need another PlayStation. They need more time with you. Uh, And, you know, this is something that in the back of our head we all know. That's why we all get teary when we hear the song Cats in the Cradle. Because we already know this to be true. We just don't take it to heart as much as we really should.
1: Uh, if only we could live the Hallmark cards we buy to give people <laughs> when we haven't been living the Hallmark cards that we buy to give people then <laughs> everything would be great listen Lorette I do I do have to boogie on um, sorry um, speaking of parenting um, it's, it's time for me to resume but um, if there's anything you'd like to tell my listeners about any un- upcoming projects or, or places you're going or things that you're doing I'm sure certainly um, my listeners are a huge fan of, of just about everything that you say uh, so if you'd like to share anything about that that would be fantastic well I
0: am considering I decide I opted out of doing the live weekly show just because uh, of the, the commitment factor, but I am considering doing a semi-frequent podcast addressing uh, particular topics that are important to parenting, libertarian parenting, uh, free thinking parenting and I'm open to suggestions, and I will also cover questions during those infrequent or maybe semi-frequent sessions. I'm always open to questions. I try to answer them in email. I may answer them during podcasts, so I can be reached via com. The site is going to be moving, but I think by the time this is published, uh, it'll all be okay again. So you can go ahead and just visit com. Everything's right there, and in, I'm still pretty focused on fall uh being able to publish another book which is called learning curves and that's um very easy and simple guide to getting started with home education from a thinking perspective Uh, so that's coming out other than that i just i blog and hopefully i'm still offering information and you can always keep up with uh what i'm up to at my website
1: and uh, be sure to get your copy of the truly excellent Don't Do Drugs Stay For out sure. Of yes. And uh, I would really, really recommend I've that. I've gotten great Are you going to do that. an audiobook? Or we talked yeah, about that I, last eventually, year. That eventually I'll of? do an
0: audiobook. Yeah, I'll, I'll get that done sooner or later, I guess. I looked into how much studio time is, and it's really very affordable. So I think I might do that. Um, and so far, so good. I've gotten really excellent feedback on that. So um, I'm really happy about that because it, it offers a sign of hope that there are people out there that are just like, you know what, you're right, this, this sucks and I need out. So <laughs> it's going well.
1: Beautiful. Well, for your listeners, I'm, of course, at freedomainradio.com. Of course, as always, I would like to thank you for uh, a truly delightful conversation. And I think we covered a lot of important topics. Believe it or not, it was largely unscripted. I know people but the laser-like focus that we both bring to each of these <laughs> questions. I'm sure people are shocked at that. But um, uh, it was a real pleasure and I hope we can do it Absolutely.
0: again Absolutely. Love talking to you, Stefan. You have a great night.